Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the third episode of our podcast that we are now calling Just the Zoo of Us. I love it. (laughs) I want to credit Christian with coming up with the idea. He did a really good job because I know he loves puns a whole lot. A whole lot. So I'm really glad that we could incorporate your love of puns into the title of the podcast in some way. Yes, I'm very proud of it. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it comes across really well. This is... The third episode, it's been a few weeks since we recorded the last episode. Not that any of you would know that, because we haven't actually uploaded any of them yet. But it's been a couple weeks, so we're hoping to get back in the saddle today. Yeah. And since Christian went first last time, I'll go first this time. All right. So today, I'm going to be talking about the praying mantis. Hmm. There are very many types of mantises, so... To be particular, I'm talking about the European mantis. The scientific name is Mantis religiosa. I decided to pick this species of praying mantis because it's the most common. This is typically the one that you're going to see, and it's probably the one you're thinking of right now. It's the green one that it's pretty basic, like, starter praying mantis. Sure, so this is the kind we would probably find in our backyard. Yes. Okay. So... Have you ever found one here in the wild? You know, I haven't, but um, I have found their eggs, but I won't go too far into that because I know that's an interesting thing about them. (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, I don't have anything about their eggs in particular, so maybe you can... Oh, it's okay. We'll get to their mating habits later, but you can share your egg story. But um, (laughs) so, yeah, this is the one that you would find here. Uh, They're typically two to three inches long. They're, okay. they're, they're not that big. They're pretty small. Actually, I thought they were bigger than they are because I've never seen one <laughs> in like the wild or anything like that. So I, I thought they were much bigger having only seen photos of them. But they are only a couple inches big. They are originally from Europe, hence the name European Mantis. But they have spread all over the world. So you can find them anywhere. Oh. Anywhere. Hmm. Except, I'm sure... Like Antarctica or something. Well, sure. But you would find them here in Florida. You would find them all over America, Asia, Africa, Europe, everywhere you can find them. Their sort of adaptability to different environments has turned them into an invasive species in many parts of the world. Hmm. And I'll kind of, I'll touch on that a little bit later. So... The mantis religiosa, the praying mantis, they are in the taxonomic order of mantidae. There are over 2,400 species of mantises. So there are so many of them. (laughs) It was kind of difficult for me to decide which one I wanted to narrow it down to to talk about. Because they're all very different. But all of them have the, what you're thinking of as the iconic triangle-shaped head with the two compound eyes, the one, you know, one compound eye on either side, and they have those raptor arms. Oh, yes. Which I don't think (laughs) is the technical term, but it's how I describe them. They have raptor arms. It's their arms that are folded up. That's how they got their name, the praying mantis, that their arms are folded up like they're sort of praying. (laughs) So other than the other over 2,000 species of mantises, the closest relatives to mantids in general are termites and cockroaches. So Hmm. uh, these are all part of the Dictyoptera superorder. Okay. Kind of icky, but like you wouldn't think that by looking at them, but it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. 
so that's that's kind of all I have on their relatives and stuff. Just this, so your your intro to the praying mantis. So far, so good. Yeah. <laughs> For effectiveness, I gave them an eight out of ten because they're good at what they do. They have those two compound eyes that I mentioned. The those two compound eyes take up most of their head. But if you look really closely, you can see that they have three other eyes. What? Yeah, these are called ocelli. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's spelled O-C-E-L-L-I, ocelli. Hmm. Um, these are simple eyes in between the two compound eyes. So I, going into this, didn't really know very much about how compound eyes work. I figured this being the first insect I've talked about, I would kind of learn a little bit more about the compound eyes. The compound eyes are what you're looking at when you're probably looking at the praying mantis's eyes. Those two giant eyes on the side of the head. Mm -hmm. The three little ocelli in between are simple eyes, so they're more like our eyes. Hmm. The the Just the single lens. So that, that works a little bit more like ours. So I didn't really know how compound eyes work and how they dim differed from simple eyes. So I found this information from Bert Margraf at sciencing.com who explains them this way. He says the insect compound eye is like having lots of little eyes looking in different directions, but each little eye doesn't see very well. Hmm. So the human eye can swivel, but it only looks in one direction at any given moment. The quality of its vision is much higher than that of a compound eye, and it has a more complex construction. So you would probably assume that since a compound eye is made up of a ton of lenses and a ton of eyes, mm -hmm. you would probably reasonably assume that it sees better. It does sure. not. <laughs> it doesn't. So the the two compound eyes are for detecting movement and for the depth perception. They can't really differentiate details. It's it's not a high resolution image mm. that they're seeing. But the benefit of it is that they're they're convex so that they have such a, an incredibly wide range of vision. Mm. So they can see all around them and they're very good at detecting movement. Mm. But the, so the three simple eyes on top of the head are really more for detecting light. So, so they, they really don't have very good detailed perception, but they do have very, very good motion perception. So their ability to detect motion pairs really well with their reflexes. Mm -hmm. And their reflexes are extremely fast. They're so fast that they're difficult to perceive with the human eye. So when you're watching a praying mantis hunt and catch its prey, you probably won't see that movement because it's so fast. They are also really good at jumping and aiming their jumps. And it wasn't really known how good they were at this until uh, Malcolm Burroughs, an entomologist at the University of Cambridge, and his team took super slow motion videos of young mantises jumping from where they were sitting onto a like a pro onto like a, a stick shaped sure. thing. And took these super, super slow motion videos and then studied how they got from one place to another. Because remember, they can't see very well. Right. How did they know where to land and how did they land there so accurately? So what they determined was that young mantises aim their jumps by twisting and rotating their body in three sections. So the three sections being their abdomen their front legs, and their hind legs. Hmm. So each of those three sections switches between turning clockwise and anticlockwise. So throughout the jump, they're twisting each section of their body in opposing directions. 
throughout the jump, they're switching back and forth, they're switching directions, and that keeps the central trunk of the body of the mantis stable and in line with the target. Oh. So hmm. you don't see this when you're when you're watching it just with your eyes, but when you slow it down, you can see what they're doing. They're very rapidly twisting their body so that they land in the spot they need to get. Huh. That's really cool. I didn't know they could do that. So another thing I gave them points for for effectiveness was their camouflage. So these are ambush predators. They don't chase their prey. They blend in. They blend in with the foliage and the leaves. They wait for something that they judge that they can catch to move within striking range. And then they sort of do that thing where they reach out and grab it and pull it in. Because mm-hmm. their their forearms are covered in these little spikes that, yeah. that trap their prey. So they use this ambush strategy to surprise and take down their prey. And they can take down prey much larger than themselves, including birds. Whoa. Yeah, they can take down hummingbirds. I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit later. It's become a problem. Huh. <laughs> so... In uh, this Newsweek article that I found, Dietrich Mebs, a retired forensic ecologist at the University of Frankfurt, explained that the mantis's strength lies in its ability to surprise the birds and to not let go once it has latched on. They just hold their prey and eat them while they're still alive, slowly and slowly until there's nothing left. It's really impressive. Hmm. So they don't actually kill their prey. They just catch it and eat it. I mean, at some point they die. At some point, sure. <laughs> they're going to die, but they, they, they don't actually have any sort of, like, kill tactics. They're just, they just catch it and eat it. So, I'll... Oh, how horrifying. Yeah. That will play into their ingenuity score later on. But uh, for right now, I want to talk about the... Because I did give them an 8 out of 10 instead of a 10 out of 10. And I deducted a couple of points for their extremely poor sound detection. Hmm. So... Uh, Joe Ballinger at AskAnEntomologist.com explains that they mantids have only one ear, and it's in a really weird place. It is located in the middle of their middle and hind legs. So their ear is split in half, but both halves function as a single unit. There's a single neuron which connects them, and it fires if either half hears anything. So functionally, only one ear. That positioning, would you describe it as its butt? I think it's like more towards the front of the animal. Okay. I don't I didn't really see an illustration of where it is, but I okay. mean a, a butt ear is pretty great. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of where I was headed with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if a mantid has a butt, do they even have a butt? I mean, I'm sure they have some sort of <laughs> some waste. Sort of- I don't know. I didn't look into their excretory system that closely. We're going to need a new uh, category. For butt efficiency? (laughs) Anyway, so they have this one ear. Their hearing is really, really narrow. They can't hear very much. Their hearing is, is best between 30 and 60 kilohertz with an upper range of up to 150 kilohertz. But the sounds that they themselves produce are only around 8 kilohertz, so they can't even hear each other. They can't can't hear their own noises (laughs) that they make. See, this explains their marital problems. They can't (laughs) listen. (laughs) I'll get into their marital problems. So uh, they actually communicate with each other using pheromones, so they don't really need to communicate with each other with sound. It's just... 
it seems kind of silly that they would produce sounds that they can't even hear. <laughs> for for reference, human hearing maxes out around 20 kilohertz, so they can't hear our voices at all. It's way too low pitched. Huh. So they can only hear like very very high pitched sounds. Hmm. So the I I tried to kind of dig around to see why it is they even hear at all cuz they're they're bad at it. So like why even bother having something that can hear and the, it seems that the sole purpose of their hearing is kind of for the purpose of detecting bats, because bats are kind of their biggest predator. Right? Oh, I thought biggest you were about, threat. I thought you were about to tell me these things try to take down bats. I was like, oh. no, <laughs> it's more for avoiding bats because bats are kind of their biggest threat. Okay, so it's the echolocation they're listening for. I guess. Yes, okay. but a lot of bats echolocate at frequencies outside of that range, well. so mantids can't hear them anyway. <laughs> Well, then. That's not all bats. They can hear a lot of bats, but there are also a lot of bats that they cannot hear anyway. So I wonder if that's because of how they spread. Maybe from wherever they're originally from, the bats had echolocation within their be. frequency. But then sure. it just didn't adapt as they spread. Yeah, so it seems that this this sort of hearing ability of theirs is one of those things that's like they have it, but they're not particularly good at it <laughs> evolution works that way sometimes you know you could be a jack of all trades but a master of none <laughs> so they're not particularly masters of hearing they can do it but very poorly okay. so that's why i took a, at least a couple of points off of their effectiveness so moving on to ingenuity uh they're a bug they're not real bright mm-hmm. i gave them a four out of ten for ingenuity so I, I did give them some points for some cool things that they do. They ha- they they display dynamic behavior. This is bluffing behavior. <laughs> so it's it's meant to startle predators. This is not for like this is not a hunting technique. This is a self defense technique. It's a bluff. So they have these eye spots on the insides of their front legs hmm. that when they're threatened, they reveal these eye spots and spread their wings. Mm-hmm. So it makes them look much bigger than they really are. The eye spots make them look really intimidating. It's really meant to startle a predator for long enough for them to get away. Okay. It's it's not they're not so great at fighting. <laughs> they're a bug, right? Like what are they going to do? So they they're they're not so great at defending themselves, but they do have this this bluffing behavior that at least gives them an escape opportunity. They also do something interesting called peering. They have a peering behavior. This is what they do is they sort of rock back and forth. They they will move forwards and backwards over and over again uh while they're while they're walking around. So what this is letting them do is this lets them judge the distance of an object by observing how much it appears to move based huh. on their perspective. This is called motion parallax. This is a, a concept called motion parallax. You can understand how this works by imagining that there's a tree five feet in front of you mm-hmm. and a building a hundred feet in front of you. So if you back up another five feet, the size of the tree in your vision will change a lot, right? Mm -hmm. You're now 10 feet away instead of five feet away. That tree is going to look a lot smaller. But the building that's 100 feet away, it's going to be about the same size. Mm -hmm. The the size of the building isn't going to change very much to you. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how motion parallax works, is that you can judge how far something away is by how much it changes in your perspective when you Hmm. move around. Interesting. Yeah. That that makes me think of, you know, when you're driving a car, 
you can tell the distance between you and another car is changing quickly based on the size of that car and your field of vision. Yeah. That's how I think of it, at least. Yeah, so it's pretty neat that they do that, that mm-hmm. they, they're, they're actually pretty, they kind of make up for their not-so-great vision by, like, doing that behavior that lets them judge distances a little better. But it, yeah. it serves another purpose of contributing to their camouflage because the that rocking back and forth can mimic the motion of a leaf or a twig like swaying in the breeze and they're meant to look like a leaf Hmm. so it kind of helps them by uh mimicking the movement of their foliage that they're trying to blend with so that's those are kind of the things that i thought were pretty neat about what they do i did take a bunch of points off For their cannibalism. (laughs) This is the dumbest thing. So I tried to give them the benefit of the doubt to think maybe there's some sort of function that their cannibalism serves. Pretty famously, the female praying mantises eat the males after they mate. They will get it on, mate, and then the female immediately eats the male. (laughs) The benefits of this to the female are that she gets a free meal, and it's a pretty good meal, and that's really it. She just gets a free meal. I mean, I think we can all agree how great a post-coitus snack can be. (laughs) (laughs) That's basically what it is. So I was thinking maybe there's some sort of benefit to this, and it's been sort of posited that... The males are acting selflessly by allowing the female to eat them so that she gets a good meal in the hopes that, like, she'll be stronger and able... I don't know. So that was (laughs) sort of studied by these two scientists, by Caesar Gimeno and Jordi Claremont, who showed that males approached females over six times faster if the female was busy. Or distracted, feeding on prey. Huh. So they studied this by having these female praying mantises, and some of the females they would do nothing to, and some of the females they would give them something, like give them a, a piece of prey, or give them something that they, that was, some of them had a piece of prey that they were busy eating, and some of them, they waited until the until the females were kind of grooming themselves. So they were busy with that. And then when the female was busy, they would introduce the males. Well, they would also introduce the males to the ones that weren't busy. Hmm. So they studied to see whether the males just kind of went for it. And the ones that were presented to the females that were not busy approached much more slowly and seemed to be actively avoiding getting eaten. Because if the female was busy and she's already got something she's eating, he has a much better chance of getting away without getting eaten. (laughs) So they were much more eager to approach the females that were busy and less likely to kill and eat them. So they're they're at least aware of the danger. They're they're aware that it's not good. They don't <laughs> want to get eaten. So I found this line from Wikipedia very very funny. It says on first glance, this behavior does not seem to be very beneficial for the male since he dies. <laughs> not beneficial to you <laughs> because you are dead. So that I found that very funny. They also won't hesitate to eat each other even outside of a sexual context. Mm-hmm. They will just go for it. So even in captivity, they have to be kept in isolation away from each other because they will eat each other. No yeah. questions asked. So, <laughs> yeah, they they just kind of indiscriminately eat each other for 
seemingly no reason, right? Because the male does not want to be eaten. True. The female eats him anyway. I guess with, if a meal presents itself. <laughs> yeah, so I I did kind of factor that in. So they, they only strike at what they can see moving. So they're just kind of indiscriminately eating whatever crosses into their field of view. What if they have a bad memory and they, 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 they finish up mating and they just... They they forget what just happened. They're like, oh, hey, something's moving. Time to eat that. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it it could be that they just don't process it as like, oh, this is one of me. Like, right. oh, I have to be, I have to not kill this thing because it's another one of my species and I want my species to live on. It's not a very altruistic species. They will not hesitate to kill and eat each other. So they don't discriminate between their targets, and they'll strike at and attempt to eat pretty much anything. Okay. So that's why I took a whole bunch out for their ingenuity, because there's not really a whole lot going on in that Hmm. little praying mantis noggin. So the only category left is aesthetics. I gave them a 7 out of 10, because they're pretty. All right. They have a very, like, elegant, I think they have a very alien-like beauty. They look very kind of ethereal, because of their, like slender limbs and really interesting angles it's a very angular appearance i think they they look really beautiful but they are once you see them compared to the other types of mantises they're pretty plain looking oh, yeah. this is specifically the european praying mantis they're just plain green bare bones sort of mm-hmm. if you really want to find some beautiful mantises um i did some i did some poking around and i found my favorite ones which are the orchid mantis this oh, is the yes. flowery the the very like white and flowery one that's meant to look like orchid petals there's also the devil's flower mantis and the spiny flower mantis Ooh. so these are some really really beautiful mantises that have evolved to look more like flowers so overall between the 8 out of 10 for effectiveness the 4 out of 10 for ingenuity and the 7 out of 10 for aesthetics overall i gave them a 6 out of 10 okay just decent it's okay they're all right they're no alligator (laughs) they're fine so last kind of wrapping up fun facts about the praying mantis their conservation status is of least concern (laughs) there's no no worry about the mantis they're doing great They have in the past been released in the United States as pest control. So they're sort of set loose (laughs) in parts of the United States to eat other insects. Anything in particular? Um, I I don't think. Hmm. It's just they they eat other bugs. So they were kind of let loose to do that. The drawback to that is that they don't care what they eat. And they don't differentiate between good and bad. True. They will eat anything they can catch particularly bad thing is that Chinese mantises, so these are not European praying mantises, but Chinese mantises are really badly threatening the ruby-throated hummingbird. Ruby-throating... Oh my gosh. Ruby-throated hummingbirds (laughs) are very frequently caught and eaten by Chinese mantises. Oh man. Yeah, so that's kind of become a problem. Hmm. The uh, praying mantis is the state insect of Connecticut. Huh. Okay. Despite the fact that it is an introduced species, oh, well. <laughs> it is not from there, but I guess they really like them. I guess, I mean, they're they're pretty, they're neat looking. Sure. Maybe the folks in Connecticut are like really into martial arts and like <laughs> kung fu, right? I guess. Maybe that's just something they're really into. I don't know, but they, they just really like the praying mantis hmm. enough to make their state insect. And praying mantises are popular pets. 
They're hmm. actually like so much of the information that I found was from like people who keep these as pets. And like you mentioned earlier, are they typically individual pets? So they, oh yes, yeah. yes, just the one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> just the one, unless you're trying to set up some sort of praying mantis fight club. Oh. Like, oh, you know what? Now that I think of it, that probably is a thing. People probably, probably do. You know how they do those like Japanese sort of like insect fighting things oh, with like, like beetles yeah. and. They probably do some some degree of praying mantis fighting. Mm. I don't know if that's legal. I mean... <laughs> Is it? Who knows? I don't know. They're of least concern. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that kind of brought a thought. Uh, so when we talk about conservation status, I wonder if there's ever something beyond the least concern. Like maybe there's just there's too, too many. Too of many. Them. <laughs> yeah, like there's too many, please... Do something. Do, please start <laughs> killing these. Oh, no. They suck. Please. I mean, they're, other than, you know, taking down hummingbirds and just kind of being out of control killing machines, they, they're not super problematic. I, don't I, wonder, I wonder if they go after bees. I don't know. Thoughts. Yeah. So, so, so these are pretty uh, tough beasts. They're, they're pretty cool. They're not real bright, but I have a feeling most insects and most, I, I don't think a mantis is an insect, but most um, bugs are probably going to score pretty low on ingenuity. Maybe. So that's so, pretty par for the course. So earlier I mentioned their eggs. Yes. Oh yeah. Tell me about your mantis eggs. So mantis eggs, I don't know if it's all of them, but some of them at least, what their eggs look like to me personally <laughs> is if someone spat on the ground. Oh, it's like bubbly looking. Yes. Gross. <laughs> Yuck. Um, so luckily, I was not curious enough to take them with me. Because I have read stories where <laughs> young children have found a lot of these and put them in a shoebox and oh, no. brought them in the house. Gross. So then you'll have thousands of tiny little praying mantises running around. Please and don't. And it turns out, baby praying mantises love to eat other yeah. Baby praying mantises. <laughs> yeah. Any praying mantis will just eat any other praying mantis that well, you don't care. So in that particular situation, though, that is the most available food source. <laughs> so... You know what? I call that a self-solving problem. Yeah. I mean, hey, you got a praying mantis you'll problem? One, you'll really have just... one very full praying mantis left. <laughs> oh, no, because then you've weeded them out. Now you're left with one ultimate champion praying mantis. You're left with the most powerful one. Let's, uh, let's contact the Sharknado people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this, that's natural selection occurring mm. i suppose maybe maybe that's why they eat each other because they're trying to naturally select each other to only make sure only the strongest ones i bet survive. we're just overthinking it and they're just like yum food yeah I don't, now that i think of it they probably don't have like a an awesome comprehension of how evolution works sure. they're probably not thinking long term like that yeah my turn yeah all let's right have at it let me hear it so, my animal for this episode is the giant panda. Love it. Excellent. <laughs> I'm so excited. A very popular animal seen in lots of media. I think if you were to ask most people, they would say they, they understand what a panda is. Yes. I've got it. I'm picturing it in my head. <laughs> got it. Panda. Big, I'm, fluffy boy. I'm going to try to pronounce its scientific name. Okay. Europoda. Okay. Meleno Leuca. Oh, <laughs> that's probably okay. not correct. All right, but you did your best. I tried. It's okay. So um, please don't contact us about the pronunciation of any of these words. Yep, 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 yep. yep. I we have, will not listen. I haven't taken a day of Latin, so I have. Oh, <laughs> but I don't know if I don't know what any of those words. No, no worries. So some basic stats for our panda friends. 
Adult size, in length terms, they range from 1.2 to 1.9 meters. That means nothing to me. Four to six feet. Thank you. <laughs> uh, height from the shoulder, so when they're on all fours, so from the ground to their shoulder, 60 to 90 centimeters, or two to three feet. And their average weight is 100 to 115 kilograms, or 220 to 254 pounds. That is not as big as I thought. They're not, yeah. They're not as big as I thought they were. I guess I, especially when you said like two to three feet tall at the shoulder, that is pretty little. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if they're on their hind legs, though, they, they could be about as tall as a person. Sure, sure. Huh. Um, and that's about as an adult human male would weigh. And let's talk about where they're found. So obviously China. Got it. I think lots of people already know that. Nailed it. Specifically, they're found in mountain ranges in central China. Mainly in Sichuan, but also in Shanxi and uh, Gansu. Okay. Uh, so if you were to look at a map, this is a, a relatively small portion of China that they're found in. Mm -hmm. Taxonomic order is the carnivora. So uh, notable relatives within that order are other bears. Okay, that makes sense. So while they are a bear, they're pretty different from their <laughs> other uh, cousins. And I'm going to get into that. Okay. <laughs> First up effectiveness all right let's hear it big I, money i give them a four yikes okay let's talk about their diet shall we <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so they are equipped to be a carnivore they oh. have the digestive system of a carnivore they have the teeth for a carnivore however yep. they do still have some teeth in there to chew fibrous plants That's okay so they're an omnivore they're an omnivorous bear sure but <laughs> in practice they are typically a folivore, which means they primarily eat leaves and oh. branches. All right, sure. A lot like the okapi oh, from our previous buddies. episode. But again, the panda bear has a digestive system meant for a carnivore. Oh. So they are not particularly good at digesting <laughs> leaves and branches. I like that evolution set them up to be a carnivore, and they were like, the thing is, that's hard, and I don't want to. So the only reason they can get anything out of like that, that, that kind of plant material is because of a special, um, a special gut bacteria. And the way they get that gut bacteria is by eating the feces of their mother. Oh, my God. Stop it! So that makes you wonder, where did it start, right? <laughs> Hilarious. So, oh my gosh, gross. So very odd. Uh, so obviously, I mean, a lot of people would, would know that they primarily eat bamboo. Mm -hmm. So that's that special gut bacteria is what allows them to get any kind of nutrition out of it. And even then, they have to eat a lot of it. <laughs> their entire body has evolved to <laughs> adapt to their own laziness. They could not be bothered to hunt like an actual bear. So their body was like, all right, let's, so, I don't know, let's develop some gut bacteria. So in captivity, though, they will they, they will eat fruits and other kinds of vegetables and even some meat snacks. Uh but that's in captivity, oh, and that's geez. and that's just a way to keep make sure their nutrition is where it needs to be. So speaking of laziness, let's <laughs> talk about their reproduction. Oh no! <laughs> so right off the bat, I want to say that there's a big difference between their reproduction in the wild and in captivity. Oh okay. So the problem with their the reproduction in captivity is that they tend to lose all interest. Not just not feeling it. Got yep. better things to do. And scientists have tried all sorts of things to try and get around that, ranging from showing them videos of other pandas oh, mating. No, 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 no. <laughs> and giving them a drug that is equivalent to Viagra. Oh, my God. 
Right. <laughs> I no? gotta know more about this panda porn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's out there somewhere. The, 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 the zoologist turning in their reports like, we tried showing them porn. I don't know what. <laughs> We're all out of ideas. <laughs> Did you try porn? <laughs> So, in terms of what their normal um, reproduction is like in the wild, though, uh, they do about one young every two years, uh, which is actually very similar to the North American black bear. Oh, okay. So, I mean, one would consider that that species is thriving, right? It, it's not particularly in danger of not reproducing sure. enough. I mean, right. it has its own problems in terms of, you know, environment and what have you. But in the wild, I mean, their, their rate of reproduction is, 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 you know, average. Sure. So, but here's the problem. It's, it's a little tricky. So females, they go into heat only once a year. And it's only for two or three days. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, that's not... Okay. <laughs> so typically, panda bears are not, you know, social animals. They're typically by themselves. Right. So there's a window, right, where a female and a male panda... A two to three day window. <laughs> Jeez. Right. You really got a boogie. Yep, yep. And then once they're done mating, you know, they'll... They're done. Like they will separate, and then when uh, when a young is born, it's being it's raised by its mother uh, until it's old enough to leave, and then once again on their own. Yep. There's a very good uh, the Disney Nature documentary. Yes. Is it called Born in China? Is I that what it's called? I don't remember. Is this, uh, this is Jim the one from The Office yes. narrates it? Yeah, we went and saw it. It's really good. <laughs> you know, I hadn't seen The Office when I saw that. Yeah, so I need to go back true. and watch it now. You would appreciate it way more now. <laughs> so yeah, at the time it was just a name. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, but I think you'd you'd be very into it now yeah. these days. So that's effectiveness for out of ten. Not great. No, that's not good. <laughs> Ingenuity. I'll give them some points here. Okay. I'll give them a 6 out of 10. Sure. So first of all, because they primarily eat bamboo, they have to have at least two species of bamboo in their environment so that they don't starve. And that's because, you know, bamboo sprouts only part part of the year. So mm-hmm. they, they need one species that sprouts one part of the year and another species that sprouts the other part of the year so, oh. they, so that they have food to eat. Sure. So they know to travel. For during the seasons to find this bamboo, yeah. Um, so they they can't stay put; otherwise, they will starve. <laughs> so that's an interesting little tidbit. But also, uh, they've developed a thumb. Oh my gosh! Specifically, well, it's thought to hold shoots of bamboo while they're eating them. Their body has really just like accepted their it's like, choices. It's kind of like here's a, I'm gonna throw you a bone. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can hold you, s- you can hold it real good. You're not gonna digest it very good though. <laughs> like the 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 panda body is like you seem to be hell bent on this whole bamboo thing. So uh-huh. we're gonna do our best. And it has developed what I would call survival laziness. <laughs> so because of same. The- because of their diet, you know, they're not getting a particularly, you know, large amount of nutrition from it. So they are very adverse to expending energy when they don't have to. Same. Relatable. <laughs> so even so much so, like, they, they won't go up steep inclines. Uh, yeah. Which I guess that makes sense. You know, the, you do what you have to do with what you've got. <laughs> so, you know, six out of ten ingenuity. Um, Hearing all of these ways in which the panda has sort of forced itself to adapt to its own inefficient, extremely lazy lifestyle is mm. very relatable to me. <laughs> it's like, I don't feel like it. I'm going to 
change everything about my entire life to make sure <laughs> that I have I can only exert as little and en- as little effort as possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least they're making it work, right? <laughs> so we get to our final category: aesthetics. So this one, I uh, give it a nine out of ten. Obviously, so yes. panda bears very cute. Um, they look very cuddly. Yep. I wouldn't recommend going up and trying to hug one. It's not going to stop me, but I have noted your opinion. <laughs> they've known to cause harm and frustration. So, like, from being annoyed by a human. Oh. Like, they, they won't try to specifically hunt down a person or sure. what have you. But if they feel particularly annoyed, they will maybe bite or... Yeah, a, a bite. Little, just a little chomp. A little chomp <laughs> I mean, with those leftover carnivore teeth. <laughs> so... Yeah, very cute. Uh, they they have that very distinct pattern in their fur, uh, where their their arms and legs are black. Love the, it. The body is white. Love it. Uh, their ears are black, I believe, and also very their cute. eyes. Very fluffy. Yep, very distinct. And the markings around the eyes make the eyes look big and sad. Yeah. But in a really kind of pouty and cute way. And they got the big chubby cheeks, too. The chubby cheeks, it really drives it home. It's, <laughs> it's really, they have the looks department yeah. on lock. Yep, yep. So. Which, I wonder if, like, their whole evolutionary goal was that if we look cute enough, <laughs> the humans will take care of us. <laughs> and they will do everything in their power. To keep us mm-hmm. alive, no matter how bad we are at it. <laughs> yeah, so they uh, they have kind of become the poster child for animal conservation, right? Right. Um, and there's a reason for that. But uh, before we get there, let's talk about their overall score. So for the folks at home keeping score, this averages out to a 6.3 out of 10. It's a little better than a praying mantis, honestly. <laughs> Probably that aesthetic score that bumped him up. Yeah, for sure. That, that, <laughs> uh, that, that threw off that average a good bit. It's really their likability rating. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of which, so I'm going to jump into my fun facts on pandas. Okay. Uh, conservation status, they are listed as vulnerable. And so their biggest thing is loss of habitat. Right. So that's, you know, the general reduction of their habitat, but also where their habitat is separated from each other. So if, imagine a, a range of habitat for a particular panda, mm-hmm. and then something is built through the middle of it. So oh. now it can't get to the other part of it. So right. that's what I, that goes back to what I was talking about, how they need to travel between the different parts oh. of the year to get to, to where the food sources are. Right. So, so again, poster child for conservation status, lots of, you know, campaigning and mo- money has gone into the conservation of pandas. Right. They're the, the mascot for the, what, World Wildlife Foundation. Foundation? Yes. Yeah. Yep. They yep. got them on their little logo. Yep. Yep. True. Some would even consider them the kind of the poster child animal for China in general. Mm-hmm. So within China, they consider the, that animal to be the dragon. But for international relations, lots of Chinese businesses have adopted the panda as their kind a little of, more approachable, huh? As, as their brand, yeah. <laughs> it's a little more, it's a little more soft, yeah, a little more likable. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't. Dragon's pretty likable. <laughs> Dragon's pretty likable, but it does it's a, make it's a, a statement. It's yes, aggressive. Definitely. It's a little more assertive. A panda is a little more. Yeah, we can yeah. be friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, with all that conservation, though, it's been argued that too much money has gone into the conservation of pandas. Uh So, people argue that there are different species that would be better off with that kind of money. Sure. Different Uh, species who are trying way harder. (laughs) But the counter-argument is that, uh, you know, in the areas that they're conserving to to help the pandas, they're also helping thousands of other species that are endemic to to that, that part of China. Right. 
So uh, it, it balances out, I think. It's similar to the Okapi Preserve that mm-hmm. is preserving the habitat of the Okapi, but also, like, thousands of sure. other species in that area. So, sure. like, even though they might say, like, yes, this is specifically for this one species, it's also going to help the entire ecosystem in that area. Mm-hmm. It's not just... You cannot affect one species without affecting all of the other ones that rely on right. the ecosystem in their area. Yep, yep. So this is like birds, lizards, all sorts of stuff sure. that live in this habitat. So another little fun thing about pandas, and I did I did not know this existed prior to doing this research, but it is what is referred to as panda politics. Panda politics. Uh, so for those that don't know, China, as a country, uses their pandas as political... F- I, I would say tokens. Uh-huh. So kind of the reason you don't see pandas in just any old zoo is because they're very regulated by China. Okay. So you, what they'll do is that they'll sign a contract with a country or, and then within specific zoos to say, Hey, we'll give you X amount of pandas, yep. but they are on loan. Oh, they are still our property. It's for this amount of time, and you have to give us this amount of money. Oh. And then if they have any children, those are also the property of China. Oh, okay. Yes. All right. So they're very protective of their panda bears. Yes. Okay. So that's why you don't see them at any old zoo. (laughs) You know, I was just thinking to myself a second ago, I have never... I've been to a lot of zoos. Mm -hmm. It's a big... Anytime I go to a new place, I try to go to their local zoo. I don't think I've ever seen a panda Yep. in real life. I've never seen one. I think there's one in San Diego. There's one in the San Diego Zoo. The San Diego Zoo has a, like, they have a whole, like, panda cam set Mm -hmm. up. You can, like, they, like, live stream the pandas. It's crazy. I know there's one in the San Diego Zoo. I think the Smithsonian Mm -hmm. Zoo maybe has pandas. Yeah. I don't know. I really don't even know where to find a panda. But I know I've never seen one. So when I'm talking about, like, these loan programs, you know, that we're talking about in terms of time, like, years, like, 10 years or something. Right. And then in terms of money, we're in the magnitudes of millions of dollars. Sure. Rent a panda. <laughs> so this is kind of used as a relations uh, medium between China and other countries. Mm. So there's there's a lot of back and forth sometimes, depending on what else is going on in the world with, with China. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there's a whole thing there. <laughs> Interesting. And my final fun fact... There is no known pre-20th century artistic representation of giant pandas. None. In, in like... Like no paintings? Western art? Eastern Ch- art? Chinese. Chinese art. There's no Chinese art that they was just, created before the 20th century that They just were pandas. like, y'all know pandas, right? We don't need to... <laughs> We don't need to draw this, right? Y'all know this one? You <laughs> now, got this one covered? Now, they've been referenced in written materials. But, huh. but, but they didn't bother to like draw one. Yeah, or at least it hasn't been found yet. At least, huh. that's buck wild because right. they drew stuff that didn't exist. Well, and here's the thing: <laughs> one of the most popular motifs in Chinese art is bamboo, right? Right. <laughs> How about the thing that lives off of bamboo? Right. It's very strange. They drew dragons and <laughs> things that aren't real, <laughs> but no pandas. Yep. Nothing. Yep. Um, yeah. Insane. Huh. So that's what I got for the the giant panda. Well, all right. I like our I like our panda friend. They're really kind of doing their best, I guess. They're not really doing their best. I mean, <laughs> 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 but you know what? Just keep at it. <laughs> just yeah, keep trying, panda bear. You'll get it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it's a good place to wrap up. It sure is. So we thank you, everyone at home, for listening to Just the Zoo of Us. Just the Zoo of Us. So this is Christian Weatherford. This is Ellen Weatherford. Oh my God, we forgot to introduce ourselves at the beginning of the show. Whoops. That's okay. We're the Weatherfords. (laughs) Sorry about that, but... Um, if you're listening to this, you probably know us. Anyway. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to my mom. Hey mom. <laughs> right. I don't think my mom's gonna listen to this. Maybe. Oh. <laughs> mom, if you're listening, hi. <laughs> well, so a big thank you to Louis Zong for the use of his song "Adventuring" from the album B Sides. Yeah, and um, also. Uh, Taylor Gordon Wood is in the process of making some cover art for us. So once that's ready to go, we will incorporate that. And yeah, thank you to Taylor Gordon Wood for contributing the art. All right. That's that's all we've got. That's a wrap. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.